fans, teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball has all the resources that you need to be a better coach, period. Today's basketball coaches are dedicated, year-round workers who face fierce competition to keep their jobs. And excellent instruction is out there, but finding it is inconvenient, unorganized, and it can be hit or miss. So visit teachhoops.com slash 816 basketball. Sign up for the free trial. You're going to want to go past that free trial. We guarantee it. And be sure to join our good friend Billy Kegler on the Competitive Mindset Podcast where guests share how they differentiate themselves and achieve high levels of performance through the lens of motivation, competitiveness, and mindset. Join along on the journey to lifelong learning and improved performance with the Competitive Mindset Podcast. Follow on social media at Competitive Pod. Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast, brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here, as always, on the Greatest Games Podcast, a chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest game. As always, it can be their time as a JV coach, a high school coach, a college coach, or just if they've been coaching for half a century. (laughs) and a half a century and maybe if they have over 1100 wins and maybe it could be somebody that's been to the NCAA tournament 30 plus times or maybe somebody that has 37 20 plus win seasons you know who knows you never know who we're going to have on the greatest game podcast but I tell you what those those stats are applying to our guest today he's the Jefferson University head men's basketball coach Herb McGee welcome to the greatest games podcast we're glad to have you Thank you, and I appreciate your introduction, to be honest. <laughs> well, Coach, uh, normally uh, at, off the top here, we have someone give us their resume about all the stops they've had, but y- you've really only had one stop. <laughs> yeah, I started as a, uh, a student athlete at a place called Philadelphia Textile, and I've been there ever since. I, I was a freshman in 1959. And I've been there ever since, four years as a student athlete, four years as an assistant coach, and the past 53 years as the head coach. So uh, we've gone through a number of name changes. We became the Philadelphia College of Textiles and Science. We became Philadelphia University. We became Jefferson University. And now we are Thomas Jefferson University. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, sorry, I have one quick question about that. Do you still have any T-shirts that say Philadelphia Textile? Yes, I do, and you can't have it. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have one, and uh, it's like Jerry Seinfeld says on his show, men wear their T-shirts till they evaporate. Yes, so, Golden Boy. Uh, yeah, exactly right, Golden Boy. He didn't make it through the last wash. So uh, I, have, I have one that I wear – uh, when I get down the shore in the summer and I have one Philadelphia university and I have a bunch that say Jefferson and Thomas Jefferson. So that's all I own is stuff that people give me. <laughs> I love that. And Chris, I, I I've got to, I've got to tell you, I, I, I'm going to love this conversation coach. I'm going to love talking to you. You, you just kind of glossed over your playing career and did not even mention, uh, the, I believe it was the 61-62 season. Am I right in, in saying that you scored 2,235 points in a season? Is that correct? No, that's my career. Career. Okay, yeah. but still, unbelievable, unbelievable playing career. Yeah, and uh, and if I'm also correct, we're drafted by the Celtics. Is that correct? That is correct. I was drafted in the seventh round. They used to have seven rounds back then because they only had – 
eight teams. So I was like the 65th or 62nd guy taken in the draft by the Boston Celtics. I just talk, I talk about that. Now, again, some people, younger listeners might not know the Boston Celtics, 1961-60. That was it. They were the team in, in the NBA, even, even as the seventh round pick. Talk about what it meant when you eventually found out, got a phone call from the Celtics that they selected you. Yeah, it was uh, really exciting because um, uh, I'm a longtime NBA basketball fan, grew up a fan of the Philadelphia Warriors. Uh, Wilt Chamberlain, Paul Ares, and Tom Gola, et cetera. And went to a lot of games. And especially back then, you know, you, you played the same teams a lot because there was only eight teams in the whole league. So to get drafted by them was really exciting. I uh, didn't try out because I had broken two fingers on my right hand uh, right before tryouts is concerned. And I use that now as not only the truth, but also as an excuse that I didn't make the Boston Celtics team <laughs> because at the time the Boston Celtics had Sam Jones and Casey Jones, Bob Cousy and Bill Sharman and John Havlicek and all five guys are in the hall of fame. So to make that team probably would have been pretty close to impossible, but just to be drafted was quite a thrill. Well, so you just missed out behind five hall of famers. There's no shame in that, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you be honest with you, I took a job coaching, as an assistant, and if I had made the Celtics, I probably would have made, you won't believe this, probably about the same amount of money. Mm. You know, it was like five, $6,000 that rookies were getting it back then in the NBA, unless you were like the top pick. So it wasn't like it is now, free agency, <laughs> long-term contracts, and so on. Paul, I believe Paul Arison became a good friend and was a good friend uh, and told me that when the Warriors moved, to San Francisco, he had to quit because he couldn't afford to go because he had wow. such a good job with IBM in the city of Philadelphia. Wow. And Paul Arizon, one of the forgotten early greats of the NBA in yeah, the, the 50s. Tremendous, tremendous player. Play. I believe it was Jim Beheim I heard on an on a interview a couple of years ago. He When he first started as an assistant coach at Syracuse after he had finished playing there, uh, he didn't get paid as the assistant coach. He got to stay in the dorm and he was the golf coach and he got like $2,000 for the year as the golf coach and got to live in the dorm where the football players were because Tom Coughlin was on the Syracuse football team and Beheim was in charge of the dorm that Coughlin was in. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> well, my job, when I got hired, we had a JV team and I was going to be the JV coach. But also at the same time, they made me the cross country coach. I ended up being cross country and tennis coach. I coached the golf team for a few years and I taught some phys ed classes like golf, tennis, racquetball, et cetera, et cetera. So jack of all trades really what my job was. And I was really thrilled to get it. Well, you're, you're talking to a former cross country coach that knew nothing about cross country. The same, same type deal coaching basketball. Yeah. Hey, can you coach cross country? Yeah, you know it. How about track? You got sure. it. Golf. Absolutely. We'll, we'll jump in whatever I can do to, 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 to hang on and coach the basketball. job. Sure. Exactly. So we just, I, my practice with them was I ran with them. There you go. So that's what we did. Yeah. So it was great. I enjoyed it. I long for the days of cross country practice where I can go out yeah. and run. I need to. Yeah. 
exercise coach pool. We'll, we'll talk about off that, that off the yeah. air, but, uh, you know, coach, you, you've been at it for a while. And so I, I, one qu- question I've been wanting to ask you is, you know, the game has changed a bunch and, uh, the, the world has changed a bunch, but, uh, for you, for coaching, what are some of the beliefs that maybe you started out with, uh, that have just completely changed after 50 some odd years? Well, I coaching? was, um, I was one of those guys, if I had a lead, at the end of the game, five, six minutes to go, I'm sitting. I was a big fan of Dean Smith as a basketball coach when he came up with the four corners. And, uh, you know, we would do it. We would do it and sit on the ball. And if you had to get it from us, you had it foul us. So some of our scores were low. So then when they changed the rule with the shot clock, I wasn't real happy about that to start off with. I understood it. But I, to be honest with you, I felt it cost me a couple games when it first came out because I would be – I'm ready to sit on the ball if we got the lead at the end of the game. So one of the changes was that. The one change that came in right away and I loved was the three-point three shot. Uh, I would have loved to have played with the three-point shot when I played. Uh, but the three-point shot, I think, really changed the game. And now they keep moving it back, and I think it's a good thing. You know, they're, they're talking about freedom of movement in the lane and around the key area. And I think it's really worked out fine. And I think the three-point shot keeps you in a lot of games and can spread you out if you've got a decent lead. And if you're down a bunch, you can always come back. Three-point shot uh, and the 30-second clock, the game's never over. Yeah, that, the, the comeback part with the three-point shot is so true. You are, you're always in a game with the uh, yeah, three-point ab- shot. Ab- absolutely. Coach, I want to know what happened in 1973-74. You only went 10-14. and 14. I mean, come on. That's just – we can't have that. I mean, just <laughs> – no. what, what happened there was uh, we had a problem, and I had to discipline three starters. Unfortunately, all three terrific guys, but they made the big mistake as far as what they did. And, you know, if you don't – if you're a coach and you don't have – if you have rules, you got to stick by them. And they, they violated the rules and they were dismissed from the team. And it, it cost us. I was at the question I was really going to ask. I was just joking about that, but that's, that's nice to know. I was going to ask, what advice would you have for young coaches getting started? And maybe that's one of the big pieces of advice about sticking to your rules that you have for everybody. And making sure your rules are something that are feasible. In other words, just don't come up with a rule for the sake of a rule, have something that you can definitely, if someone violates the rule, there's, there is punishment for that. You know what I mean? It has to be dealt with. So other than that, I would say, make sure your players know who the boss is. Make sure your players know who's running the ship. Make sure your players know they have to understand. They do exactly what the coaches tell them to do. And I think you won't have a problem. The best teams I've ever had always had one common thing, one common denominator. All the guys on the team were good teammates. And we preach that to our players all the time. We preach we preach to them about becoming a good teammate. If you got all your guys are good teammates, you really don't have to be great players in order to have a successful year. Hmm. Coach, I, I'm going to go further on that one. When you're teaching those guys to be great teammates, what are some of the specifics – that you're pointing out that they do well or the things that they're not doing well, but round that out for us a little bit more. What, what does it mean to be a great teammate? I think you have to, as a college coach, provided you are recruiting and you don't just take what shows up on opening day. If you're recruiting your players, you have to be very, very diligent as far as looking at them, not only as what they can do on the floor, 
but how they react to their coaches, how they react to their teammates, how they react to their uh, to the referees. Uh, you have to do your homework. You have to do your research so that when the kids get on campus, you have a kid who can become a good teammate. And if you do that and create that, then the seniors and the juniors and the sophomores on the team will dictate to the freshmen exactly how they have to behave. So we're, we're, we're always, always, always vocal about those kind of things. And then we stress, we stress academics with them at the same time. We don't want our guys coming on campus, playing basketball for four years and just leaving. We want to make sure that they get a degree, even if it takes extra time. And we emphasize that with them too. Hmm. I think that's so key. This is going to be a little bit of a sideways story, but I'll bring it back to what you just said. I went to a a concert at the Spectrum Center, which is in Charlotte a couple of years ago, and um, had a conversation with with an usher there. She was so helpful, so supportive, helped me to find the restroom. And I was just, I was blown away by how helpful she was. And I I got out the restroom and I said, how did you do that? Who trained you? What do y'all do in training to be able to be this helpful? And she looked at me, she said, that's just, that's just who I am. That's how they hire people here. And I said, Oh, so I I think to your point, that's such a key point to be able to recruit the guys that you need and the guys that you're, the things that you're looking for, and then hold them accountable to that. Once you get on camp, once they they get on campus, I think that's so, so huge. Yeah. Their their ability to play basketball is huge. I mean, you're not going to take a guy just because he's a good guy if he can't play. But if you do your homework as a coach, I think you can really research that, uh, talking to not only the players on his team, but his coaches and other coaches where he competes against. I think you can find out a lot about it. That's, uh, yeah, I always, I always tell kids or told kids when they were getting recruited that I knew they were getting recruited and stuff. You know, a good, a good coach He's going to know that you can play already. When he comes to see you, he's going to look at everything else, right? How you warm up, how you react on the bench. He's going to go to the trainer and ask the trainer. He may go to the custodian in the gym and say, what's that kid like? You know, those type of things. Yeah, that's the right way to do it. I think I've been doing that my whole career. Uh, Coach, before we go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I was going to say, and sometimes it fails and you make a mistake and then it's up to you to rectify it. And you really count on your the other kids on your team to help you with that. But we've had guys that we've had to dismiss. Not many, very few. But if it happens, it happens. And if you dismiss somebody, I think it's selling, uh, telling the rest of the team, like, you know, I better straighten up. Coach, this is a. I don't know why I thought about this question. We're going to get to your to your greatest game, or have you tell have you tell us about a couple games here in a minute? But what's the the best or the coolest or the most exciting venue you've coached in over 52 years? Uh, University of Pennsylvania Palestra. Um, the, the people that ran the Palestra would give us every year a game or two, and then it would be up to me to bring in an outside opponent. And we would combine our game with the double header. So we played, uh, Notre Dame played Villanova. We played Cheney State that, that day. Uh, St. Joe's played somebody. We played Kentucky Wesleyan. We played Tennessee State. Uh, we played a number St. Michael's from Vermont. We played a number of teams over the years in the Palestra, and I think that's probably the best venue. I think it might be the best venue in college basketball in the country. I don't know. Have you guys ever been there? Yes. Yes, I have been. I've been there several times. We do not play there, though. Okay. Um, it's, it's an no, we played, we played at Temple a couple of times. We always played on campus at Temple. 
Yeah, I, we, my teams have played there too. And then in, in some years, the big five schools would play us there. We played Temple there. We played St. Joe's there. We played Villanova there a few times. And uh, it's just an exciting, exciting place to be. And your players all know about it because most of our kids are from the area. Yeah, that's a- Brian, I, Brian, I would, I'm giving it away. I'm giving you a bunny here. One Hall of Fame Division One college basketball coach coached at Cheney State University. At Cheney State? In I, Philadelphia. I, I don't know, Chris de Blasio. I basically gave it away. We already said the school where he coached most famously. Go ahead, Chris de Blasio. He said his name. John Cheney. John Cheney. Oh, I got you. Okay. Yeah. Now, the school is not named for him, but. No, no. It should be. Yeah. It should be. It should be. right. We played them a lot. John's teams were really, really difficult to beat. He played that zone. Uh, they yes. Ran great, they ran great stuff. And he always, always took the court with tremendous talent. So, and he, he was a tough guy to play, to play against. He really was. Well, that, that's a venue, the Palestra, that I've yet to. To, to visit Hinkle Fieldhouse might be the, the closest uh, oh, for me as yeah. a Mecca basketball that I've seen a couple yes, of games. I can about. see, I can see that, you just, know, just, yeah. just the movie Hoosiers. That's right. <laughs> portrayed in the movie Hoosiers, you know, right. It's a, Jimmy it's Chitwood, a hitting the jumper at the, <laughs> how could it be better than that? <laughs> That's right. Well, speaking of that great game, coach, let's go ahead and get into your greatest game or greatest games. We know you've been a part of a, of a lot of uh, a lot of them and a lot of, I think it was 1,123 wins, if I'm right. So, uh, coach, if you could just tell us about your greatest games, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah, you know, I, I, any game we won is the greatest game that I've ever <laughs> coached. In. So, 1,123 times are the greatest games I've ever had. Uh, obviously, in the national championship game uh, in Evansville, Indiana, when we beat Tennessee State, uh, in 1970, it, it's the highlight of, I think, any coach. If you have one national championship, which we have, and that would be it. The other games would be the games that we played the big five schools. Uh, our players, if they had been recruited by a big five school, probably would have gone there. Uh, but we were able to play and defeat uh, Villanova a couple times. We beat Temple three times. We played St. Joe's one time. And I, I remember every single bit and every single part of all those games. And uh, we've had a bunch of really other great games, but uh, I'd say the national championship team and playing the big five schools and being successful. What was the best big five win do you think you had? Did you coach against Coach Massimino? Or? Yes. yes, we did. We did a couple times. And uh, we beat them. The one time we beat, beat them back-to-back years, once at the Palestra, going over the field house actually by the exact same score. So uh, uh, those games were outstanding games Now we didn't beat them. We didn't play them when they had their national championship team. Uh, but those games were really great basketball games. I remember our guys in the locker room were going crazy after the game was over. Talk about, you, I just mentioned coach Massimino. You, you already talked about Jay Wright, who you're good friends with. Talk about the the Philadelphia coaches and coaching. We, we just talked about John Cheney. There's others, the Fran Dunphy, and obviously Steve Lapis had success at Villanova. Coach Martelli, who we've had on the podcast, uh, uh, Jim Lynham, who you went to uh, college with, I believe, right? Who coached in the NBA uh, high school. I'm sorry. Talk about the Philadelphia coaching tree and and that camaraderie that Philadelphia coaches have with each other. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's, it's really something that you can almost touch it. 
You know, that's how real it is. Um, it all started, in my opinion, with Jack Ramsey. I, I forgot. Yeah, <laughs> when he was at St. Joe's. At the time, when he was coaching St. Joe's Hall of Famer, when he was at the time uh, on in the Big Five, Harry Litwick, Hall of Famer, uh, Chuck Daly at the University of Pennsylvania, Hall of Famer, John Chaney later on, Hall of Famer, Tom Golick coached LaSalle, Hall of Famer. So right down the line, they've had such tremendous coaches. And at one time, you couldn't get into a Big Five game because they were all being played at the Palestra. And those, those were sell, sold out as soon as they put the tickets on sale. Just a mob scene. So it's uh, uh, the Big Five. And then when Coach McKinney, Jack McKinney, played for Coach Ramsey and, and coached under him, actually coached textile for one year. I was his assistant for one year. Jack came there and then did a great job at St. Joe's. And then you know what happened when he went to the pros, he had the Lakers who won an NBA championship. He was not there at the time, but also the guy took over for him is another St. Joe guy named Paul Westhead. And they won the, uh, the NBA championship in Philadelphia when Magic Johnson as a rookie, mm -hmm. like 42 points and 15 assists or something like that. So right down the list, you know, uh, Robbie Massimino at Villanova, Jack Kraft at Villanova, Chuck Daly at Penn, Bob Weinauer at Penn. You could go right all through the entire, entire big five. The, the, the names that you're running down is just, it's simply incredible. And I, and I, I referenced this podcast episode about, about every other episode when we have coach Phil Martelli on as Chris was talking about episode 69 and the thing that blew me away from listening to him and has blown me away from listening to you coach is just that it's about the game, that it's about relationships. It's about the kids and it's really, and you haven't really said this uh, verbatim, but I'm just hearing it. It's about growing the game and taking care of each other. And it just sounds like just a, just a neat coaching fraternity of everybody looking out for each other. Exactly. The game is over. Not only did you shake the other guy's hands, but some of those guys you might end up having a beer with later. That's how uh, close everybody was. There was no animosity. The players played, the coaches coached, and the fans loved it. So it's still there. It's still there. But Jay's teams have really dominated. Uh, back when I'm talking about when Ramsey and uh, 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 Harry Litwack and then John Chaney, uh, and when they were all there, the games were all wars. But Jay has completely dominated the Big Five in the last X number of years. I watched yeah, the game he's... Tonight. yeah, exactly. I watched the game tonight, St. Joe LaSalle at LaSalle, and LaSalle was killing them. Next thing you know, St. Joe's is I mean killing them. And St. Joe's come back to cut it to like five at the end. And that's typical Big Five basketball. Yeah, we had a, a friend of mine, uh, Matt Bloom, who was an assistant at LaSalle for a couple of years, and he talked about a game uh, when they beat Butler about eight or nine years ago. And, he, you know, he talked about being in the Big Five and just what it means and Philadelphia basketball. It's such a great scene. It's, you know, I, I live right outside of New York, grew up outside of New York, and everyone talks about New York basketball and what it means, and it does. But Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia and what it's meant to basketball is, is, is just as important. You've, you know, went through the – the list of those coaches. Coach, I want to ask you this. Brian asked you this earlier, kind of, you know, the changes you've seen in the game. What's something you would like to see maybe changed in the game today? And not necessarily a rule or 
or, or stylistically or what's a, what's a problem you see with the game of basketball today that maybe we could fix? Well, there's so many uh, different ways of playing the game, uh, but I'm not sure you can fix that. That's up to the individual coach. I think the game is at its peak right now. I think with the different rules that we have now, I don't think we should be doing anything more like widening the lane. Uh, that's been talked about. I don't think, I don't see any reason for that. Um, I don't know. I, I think the more the NCAA does to educate the referees, I think the better the game will become. Uh, each year I get this film from the, uh, uh, the head of the officials and I watch it because we're supposed to and we have to and I enjoy it. And it talks about how you should work and call the different games. And then the season starts and they're not called that way. And, you know, like they're talking about uh, chucking and uh, low post play and uh, freedom of movement. The game starts and you don't see it. So I think one of the things that should be helped is for the officials to go through more rigorous training as far as they want the universally to call the games. I think that's really key because you never know from what game to the next how the game's going to be called. And I think we need to get some more uniform uniform way of refereeing the basketball game. Yeah, that's that's true even at the high school level too. <laughs> and it's and it's harder, you know, those guys that we have coming in the, the and I don't I don't really blame those guys. Right. I right. Mean, they're, they're, you know, some of the guys are making a nice living, but guys that work our games, I'm not sure what they get. But they're not getting what Division One coaches are getting, like Division One referees are getting. Right. So I think, uh, but still, you have to be good at your craft if you're going to advance. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you guys come into the game and they just don't have the same attitude that they should have, because the game means a lot to myself and to my players and to the other coach and his players. It's got to be the same thing with the officials. So I think the important thing to do would be to educate them more than they are doing now. Mm-hmm. Of course, all of them have other jobs. So it's not like their first line of employment. You know, I mean, it's not like the NBA guys where that that's what they do for a living. These guys all have jobs. They're coming from their job and they're going to work a game. But I still think they have to get better at. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I know our high school guys down here in South Carolina doing the best they can. We have some really, really good ones and and guys that are, like you say, just kind of up and coming and just working Mm -hmm. on, you know, it's uh, and that's a job that, you know, Chris knows this about me, coach. I I love officiating basketball games. It's so much fun back to the team camp days when I was in South Carolina, just absolutely love it. And I had had the chance to do it a couple of weeks ago with, uh, we had some miscommunication, long story short, got to officiate some basketball here a few weeks ago. And it was it was really fun, and reminded me how hard of a job it really is. Oh, it really is. It's really hard to do. There's no question about it. With the way young guys are now, with the weight room and the work that they put in the weight room and their athleticism, the game is played above the rim. What is goaltending? What isn't goaltending? What is a charge? What is not a charge? But I think they have to be lectured better, or not lectured, but they have to be taught better. Mm-hmm. What what is and what isn't more if they can get the same. They're never going to have the same one guy rep exactly the same way as another guy. Mm. If they can get closer to being, you know, calling the game the same way, I think it'd be better for the whole game. That's interesting. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Coach, we like to wrap this up with sort of a sort of a fun question. This may be hard for you, though. You've been coaching, like we said, almost 60 years. If I talk to a player that played for you on the team in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and recently – 
What's the one thing they would say that Coach McGee says over and over again? Is there one phrase or saying that you've maybe said throughout the years that, that when, when, when players are sitting around having a reunion and they're doing their Coach McGee impression, what's the phrase they're saying? Well, I'm sure they do, first of all. <laughs> because a lot of these guys now I play golf with, uh, you know, some of the guys that played in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and they do it right on the golf course. <laughs> but I don't know if they have a popular – just one thing that's popular. It's, I think it's more the way I express myself. You know what I mean? Uh, so some of the stuff maybe isn't as clean as it should be. Uh, but I think what they would say is that uh, coach is fair. He's tough, but he's fair. And the one thing that I've been known to do is not play a lot of guys. So the, the, the phrase is, if you play for Coach McGee, you better have a great pair of lungs or you better have a hard ass because you're going to be on the bench or you're going to be in the game. <laughs> so I think that might be the one thing that they might say. We had a kid last year led all divisions, division one, two, and three in minutes played. He averaged over 40 minutes a game. Wow. So, you know, that's, I see no reason to take a kid out if he's one of our better players. So <laughs> that's what, uh, that's what they would probably say. If they were one of the starters, they would be like, I love the way you coach if they're off the bench. It would be like, gee, I wish he had played me more. That's like that. <laughs> Coach, the year Will Chamberlain averaged 50 points, he averaged over 48 minutes a game, by the way. I made reference to that the other day. When <laughs> we were talking about 48 points a game. And I was at most of those games, you know, averaging 50 points a game. Give me a break. It seems pretty simple to me. If a kid's playing well, why take him out? It, it yeah. makes, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> and if you need a rest, go to bed. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that you've said that one to many a players. Without question. <laughs> Just have a I'm tired. I'm tired. Go to bed. That's at night. Go to bed. So, no, it's, been a, it's been a great ride, and, you know, we're still enjoying it. Yeah. Well, we uh... – Coach, we just can't thank you enough. The the, the uh, second winningest all-time coach in, in college basketball history, a Hall of Famer. It's been a real real honor, a real privilege to have you on The Greatest Games. Really, really appreciate you coming on the show. I enjoyed both you guys. Well done. Very nice show. Time time flew by. That's right. <laughs> it did. We just means we have to come have to have to yes. bring back after a few more wins next season. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll be more than happy to. That sounds good. We'll go ahead and wrap this one up for my co-host Chris de Blasio. I'm Brian Rosefield, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Games. <laughs> <laughs>